The book of Titus is just three short chapters, and it begins like this. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledgement of the truth, which accords with godliness. The NLT says it this way. I have been sent to proclaim faith to those God has chosen and to teach them to know the truth that shows them how to live godly lives. So in the Roman Empire, the lowest position on the social ladder was the slave. But in Crete, which is where Titus would receive this letter that Paul was writing, the highest person on the social scale was the ambassador, the representative of the emperor, the sent one. And the word apostle comes from a Greek word apostolos, meaning I send. So let's think about this. Paul is saying that he's at the bottom of the social ladder. He's referring to himself as a slave, but a slave of God. And he's also referring to himself at the top of the social ladder when he calls himself an ambassador, a missionary of Jesus Christ. And as Paul said in his testimony in Acts 26, he witnessed to both great and small, to ambassadors and to slaves. He himself was both, and so are you. As a Christian, you're a slave to Christ and an ambassador for him. This means that we should have concern for everybody, regardless of what level of society that they think they belong to. Titus is mentioned 13 times in the New Testament, mostly in the personal letters that Paul wrote and in Acts. Both of his parents were Greek and he was uncircumcised. There was this big controversy as to whether Christians should be circumcised at a particular point back in the early church, and Paul went to Jerusalem to fight that battle out. But he took Titus with him to test the church of Jerusalem to see if they would refuse Titus' fellowship on the grounds that he was Greek and uncircumcised. So this is a personal letter to Titus, and we should ask, why is he writing? And verse 5 tells us that. It says, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking, and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. So there's a theme in Titus which is concerned about two things, sound doctrine and good deeds. In chapter 1, he talks about sound doctrine leading to good deeds in the church. In chapter 2, he's talking about sound doctrine leading to good deeds in the home. In chapter 3, sound doctrine leading to good deeds in the community, at your daily work. Verse 9 says, Holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able, by sound doctrine, both to exhort and convict those who contradict. So if your beliefs aren't sound, then ultimately your behavior won't be good when it's lined up against the truth. Belief affects behavior. Doctrine affects your deeds. We could look at family after family where grandparents or great-grandparents followed sound doctrine, and we'll see that the result was that they produced good deeds, good works. But then their children, if they ignored the sound doctrine but managed to keep doing some of the good things, by the third generation, their children or grandchildren wouldn't have sound doctrine or good deeds. If you lose the first, you'll eventually lose the second. And we see this example throughout the book of Chronicles and Kings with how easily the entire culture was affected by the influence of the king and his doctrine and deeds, whether they were sound or not. And we also see this playing out in our generation. Just think back 20 years and consider the massive and rapid changes that we've seen. This is why it's so important that we gather together, that we study the Word of God, whether it's a Bible study online or with your church fellowship, but staying within the family of faith and learning 
the right way from the word, not from other books, but from the word. And so Paul goes on to say here in Titus, for there are many insubordinate, both idle talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole households, teaching things which they ought not, for the sake of dishonest gain. One of them, a prophet of their own, said Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men who turn from the truth. So in verse 12, Paul is actually quoting a pagan prophet of Crete when he says Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. It was something that had been said 600 years before Jesus about the Cretan people. Now imagine trying to start a church in a community like this with members who in their daily life had been dishonest liars and cheats. They were lazy gluttons and cruel evil beasts. Paul said this testimony about these people is true. So going back to why Paul is writing to Titus, saying this is why I left you in Crete, he says it was to amend and appoint. So this little group of Christians had no elders, no spiritual leaders. They were wide open to the wrong influences. And the cure for false leaders is good leaders. So why hadn't Paul already appointed them? Because remember, in our last session, we discussed the books of Timothy, and Paul had said that you should never appoint elders in a hurry, but with time and understanding. So Paul would either wait 12 months and go back to a church and then say, okay, now here's a person who's obviously qualified to be an elder after they'd had time to evaluate that person. Or he'd send someone else. He might say, Titus, I want you to stay in Crete until each one of those churches has its own elders. And this is the pattern of missionary work that we see in scripture. A missionary goes to a place to preach until there are believers, and then they help them gather and then learn to worship and pray together regularly but as soon as possible, they should appoint elders and the missionary should move on. Paul continues in this letter, saying, To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But even their mind and conscience are defiled. To be defiled isn't outward, it's inward. If your mind and conscience are dirty, then you're dirty. If they're clean, it doesn't matter where you are, you're pure. When Paul said this, he was contradicting the ways that the Jews thought of purity. He was saying purity isn't a matter of washing your hands or where you go. Purity is a matter of having a pure heart. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Holiness is inward and not outward. Purity is of your heart and your mind. So what he's saying here is that when your heart is truly clean and you don't have wickedness ruling your mind, then you can go into bad situations and not be defiled by them. For instance, if you're going to minister to people in bars, that's not good for everybody to do. Everybody won't go in with the right motives or with the right heart. You know, they might not be strong enough yet in the faith. Don't get so close to the edge that you fall in when you're trying to go help maybe a backsliding brother or sister in Christ. But here it tells us, but to the pure, all things are pure. So Paul goes on to say in verse 16, they profess to know God, but in works they deny him being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. So Paul speaks of those who are disobedient because their minds and conscience are corrupted. Even though they claim to know God, their actions deny the lordship of Christ. This is relating to what they profess to believe and what they actually do, meaning that their behaviors and actions reveal 
what they truly believe or what they don't believe. Paul says, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith. He's saying, deal with it. It might need a surgeon's knife, but cut it out for the health of the body of Christ. He says in verse 11, they need to be silenced and that these people are in the ministry for money. It's a career, not a calling. And honestly, I have to wonder about that when we look around at many of our Western churches today and the fact that church has become big business. You know, how many pastors are in it for the money and a career and not necessarily the calling from God? Paul says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that, denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Speak these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one despise you. Notice in verse 15, with all authority. Some people have the impression that a Christian teacher is giving advice and that it's up to you whether you take it or not. But that's just not so. A Christian teacher isn't supposed to let anyone who hears them disregard what they say. You aren't saying what might be done. You're saying this is what God tells you to do. The New Living Translation says it this way, You must teach these things and encourage the believers to do them. You have the authority to correct them when necessary, so don't let anyone disregard what you say. Let no one disregard you. This will involve exhorting and reproving. I wish it didn't. It'd be a whole lot easier if it didn't. I wanted to bring up the actual meaning of this word to reprove or rebuke. Exhorting means to encourage someone, but reproving or rebuking them means to expose or to prove them wrong. And the Bible says that there are times we're supposed to do that. In chapter 3, Paul is telling Titus to teach the believers to be submissive to rulers and authorities, even to the Romans. He says, remind the believers to submit to the government and its officers. They should be obedient, always ready to do what's good. Jesus even said, if a Roman soldier compels you to carry his bag one mile, which he had a legal right to do, you should carry it a second mile. This isn't actually popular among those who want to stir things up politically, but Christians shouldn't be the vanguard of political agitation unless we're being told to do something contrary to our faith. Then we have to say we must obey God rather than men. So to summarize chapter 3, Paul is teaching that we need to witness with our lives, whether that's towards rulers with submission or towards an employer with obedience and readiness for honest work. But that also means that if someone asks us to do something dishonest, we have to say, I'm sorry, I can't do it. And finally, he says, we shouldn't speak evil behind someone's back or to their face, but instead we should be gentle and courteous towards them. Then he explains why, why we shouldn't behave towards people this way, regardless of who they are and what they're like. And it's because we were once just like them. We once added to the problems in life just like they're doing, instead of solving them. The best way to be patient with someone is to remember that you were once just like them. Have you heard that quote, but for the grace of God, there go I? That's true. And Paul says, this is a faithful saying, and these things I want to affirm constantly, that those who have believed in God should be careful 
to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to men. Titus 3.8. The New Living Translation says it this way. This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to insist on these teachings so that all who trust in God will devote themselves to doing good. These teachings are good and beneficial for everyone. Then he says it again at the close of the chapter, and he says here, it's up on the screen in Titus 3.14, our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good in order to provide for urgent needs and not to live unproductive lives. The Bible is clearly teaching us that we're to apply ourselves to doing good. That means to give thoughtful, diligent attention to doing good things. They don't just happen automatically. We've actually got to have some intention behind it. We've got to be purposeful about doing good things. And there's a lot of people that think and will preach, you don't have to do anything. You know, it's not about works at all. And the reality is we don't have to do anything to earn salvation. We are justified by our faith through grace, and it is a free gift. But we are also in a process of sanctification, and the works actually prove that our conversion at salvation was authentic. Our works are not the root. They are the fruit of our salvation. So be careful, Paul says, to do good works. That's part of it. That's why it also tells us in the Bible, faith without works is dead because our faith is proven through our works. So don't let someone deceive you by their empty words that aren't backed up with Scripture when we look at the totality of what Scripture has to say to us. In verse 9 and 10, Paul writes about those who prefer to talk rather than to act, who prefer to spend endless time discussing things rather than doing things. He told us that being devoted to good is profitable, but now he's telling us what's unprofitable. He says, but avoid foolish and ill-informed, stupid controversies about genealogies and dissensions and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and useless. And after a first and second warning, reject a divisive man who promotes heresy and causes dissension. Ban him from your fellowship and have nothing more to do with him. So in conclusion with the book of Titus, we need to be aware and we need to beware. We need to beware of doctrines that have been watered down that aren't in accordance with godliness. We need to heed the word of God in its fullness, not in bit by bit, but when we look at all of it in totality.